0: Given everything that happened in the pandemic of 2020, you'd think the government would have learned a thing or two about bioresponse. It's learned a lot, actually, but there's still more work to do, says the Government Accountability Office. And for more, we turn to the GAO's Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues, Chris Curry. Chris, could have you on? Thanks. And this latest report on bioresponse... Is it more of a review of how the government did in plans that date back to 2018? In some extent, there's plans that go back to the George W. Bush administration for bioresponse. Or are there new learnings and things that they can do, fresh recommendations? Tell us what's going on here.
1: Well, what we wanted to do in this report is so much has happened leading up to COVID and, of course, during COVID, And so we wanted to issue something talking about our biodefense work over the last decade or so and some of the key challenges. And I think one of the big concerns we have is that there has not been really a comprehensive after action done post-COVID, which is understandable. I think everyone's kind of ready to move on from, from COVID and get on to the next thing. But There were huge problems before COVID. COVID then illustrated a lot of systemic weaknesses in our system for preparing and responding to these types of events. And then, you know, it's really important that we just try to follow up on these gaps and close them before the next pandemic happens.
0: Because I know the GAO has an eight-step program, for want of a better word, on how you actually do lessons learned. Everybody talks about lessons learned, but you've got an eight-step process for that. Sounds like that's what you're prescribing for the government.
1: Absolutely. The great thing about real events like this happening is you can learn lessons from them and prepare the next time. Unfortunately, it's really hard to do. We've seen this in past disasters where there's comprehensive after action review and reporting done, which requires a lot of time and resources. And often the gaps are not closed because again, it's sort of human nature to move on to the next event, not close the prior gaps. So that's what we're really advocating needs to be done.
0: In some ways, maybe a lesson learned is post 9-11, which was the other catastrophic event, you might say, of this century, barely into the century. And there were commissions and studies and books and so forth. But you could say the government changed a heck of a lot. And the national way of thinking about terror attacks and mass destruction attacks did change. This was slow rolling, and yet it killed a million people and not just a few thousand. Not just, but you know what I'm saying that maybe that's a good model 911 response for the covid response would you say
1: I think that's a good comparison very different events but with 911 there was a lot of follow through with the 911 commission and 911 commission act the legislation that reformed how the government prepares and does intelligence gathering and things like that i mean that's that's a good comparison because i think that's what's needed in this case for example Federal roles and responsibilities were a confusing part of the COVID response, especially up front. You know, who was responsible? Was it CDC? Was it HHS? Was it FEMA? Eventually, they developed over a number of months a a strategy and and a structure to best respond to it. But that took some time to figure out based on how COVID was actually playing out across the country. But if you look at today, you know, we haven't really gone back and reevaluated those roles and responsibilities and made any systemic changes to our system in response and to prepare for the next event.
0: Do you think that one of the problems of the post facto era is that this took place, the pandemic over two administrations that frankly hate each other's guts? And without asking you to take sides, I wouldn't do that. But could that be part of the, I don't know, paralysis here for stepping up to looking at this in a commission objective kind of way?
1: You know, we're all aware of the very politically contentious discussions around certain things that happened during the pandemic, like mask wearing and lockdowns and things like that. I I do think that complicates in the ability to look at this holistically and see how we need to change our planning for the future. But I will say that across administrations, for example, in 2018, the Trump administration had issued the National Biodefense Strategy. The Biden administration just recently in uh, October 2022 issued a new strategy and a new update. There's some differences between those, but in terms of how the federal agencies need to work together across the administration, the executive branch to prepare. There's a lot of similarities. For example, under the old strategy, HHS and working with DOD and DHS and USDA was supposed to be the lead in coordinating across those departments to figure out what resources were needed for biodefense, where efforts needed to be placed. You know, a lot of that is the same today. It's the same agencies that have to work together to prepare for these types of things. I think one of the challenges has been accountability though anytime department agencies have to work together on something big like this it's very hard for them to make each other do certain things or spend money in certain ways. And that's why leadership at a higher level is necessary, whether that comes from OMB or the White House. And the Biden administration reinstituted the Pandemic Planning Office within the National Security Council. That's a good step to oversee some of these efforts. But in many ways, some of the challenges still exist, like you know, how do we determine where resources are needed across such a huge enterprise? That's still a challenge that we face.
0: We're speaking with Chris Curry, Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues at the Government Accountability Office. And I'm thinking it's probably likely that the people at the operational level, whether they're in FEMA or in some unit of CDC or HHS, they probably know one another. These communities tend to get small when you get down to the operational level and know exactly what has to be done. The sclerosis really is at the political and leadership level.
1: Yeah. And I think it's important. It's true. At the agency level, everyone knows each other and they work together. And especially during COVID, they're very much aware of what processes need to be put in place and how this might play out again in another pandemic in the future. I think what's important is over time, the structure, resources, and authorities match that. So a, a good comparison I like to use is after Hurricane Katrina, when the federal response was not what we wanted it to be. So there was legislation, major changes in federal policy, around how you respond and what authorities you have to respond to a disaster. And I think this is the same type of thing that's necessary now post-COVID is, you know, what lessons have we learned and then what changes do we need to policy to prepare for the next event so we can handle it the way we want to?
0: And state and local governments, state and municipal government, county government, that's got to be a big piece of any kind of response nationally.
1: It's a huge piece and it's a huge Peace and disaster response. And that is well ironed out at this point between the federal government, state, and locals how that response is going to work in a natural disaster, how resources are going to be shared, how funding is going to be provided from the federal government, well ironed out and tested through real events and through exercises. And I think this is no different. COVID is a disaster in and of itself. Another pandemic or a bio event is very similar. So, you know, for a long time, we've questioned why there is not a similar sort of structure and authority structure like there is in the disaster world in the pandemic or biological event planning world, and I think there should be.
0: Because you don't want people thinking of it like those signs on highways. This is an emergency escape route. You see these faded signs on crowded highways, and you realize even city streets, this is the escape route. In a real disaster, it would be absolutely jammed with traffic. You'd be sitting for six hours at the first traffic light. That's what you want to avoid.
1: Yeah. And I think the hard part about pandemics and situations like this is, you know, they don't occur very frequently, or at least that's the perception. So, um, you know, my fear is that coming out of COVID, people see this as it's a, it's a once in every 100 year kind of event. We don't have to worry about this again. We can move on to other things. That type of thinking is concerning to me because another thing could pop up and it could happen again, you know, in a couple of years.
0: So any new recommendations? And if so, who are they aimed at?
1: So no new recommendations in this product that we just issued last week. It's really just a combination of all of our prior work and reiterating some of these things. I will say you know, 21 of our 29 recommendations we've made in this biodefense space are still open. And part of that's because of how big and sweeping they were and how difficult they are to implement. So we still think those are critical to implement moving forward. And there's still a lot of work to do. So we'll be holding the agencies accountable for that over the next few years.
0: Chris Curry is Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federaldrive Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your shows.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA.
3: be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there
2: for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote
3: by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law
2: influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State. It it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to
3: that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was, but my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, Now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you
2: should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you Remember that that inspired you, that gave you purpose, helped shape your life. In 1989, when I was selected as a
3: W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. So Sulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbored no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, There should never ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness, and that was transformational for me. And why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today.
2: That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going.